We'll open your Bibles to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. We are going through the Bible one book at a time in our Sunday night series and just doing a, um, a high altitude flyover. But I want to I wanna be um, uh, honest with you. Th- this, this series is turning into something that I didn't anticipate. It's actually more than I, I ever anticipated and better and deeper than I anticipated. It's not just a survey. Frankly, to do a survey would be really easy. We just kind of go over the outline, talk about the main characters, uh, highlight the most uh, uh, memorable verses, and walk away. Instead, what I want to do is make these books come alive in a way that's familiar, in a way that's memorable, in a way that honestly makes you want to go read them and want to know what else is in these books. Personally, going back through these these first few books that we've looked at, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and now Numbers, these first four books, has been so unspeakably refreshing to me. Uh, You just are reading these these passages again and saying, oh, I remember that. Oh, I can't believe I forgot that. So I want to encourage you that as we're doing this, a great opportunity to just kind of plan. And I've heard two ways that people are approaching this study. They're reading the text before, trying to read the book before, because we're every other week and you can usually get through the books in two weeks to prepare. And some who read it after, after introduction to go back and read it. Either way, let me encourage you to use these high altitude flyovers as a reason to dive in and to dive in even a little deeper. Well, the book of Numbers is, as I said, the fourth book of the Bible. It's the fourth book of Moses, which is really a, a one book set of subparts called the law. When you look at the law, when the Old Testament believers talk about the law, they're talking about Genesis through Deuteronomy. When they looked to the book of Numbers, it was the law. It it was commandments. It was ordinances. It was examples to them. And the book of Numbers records the, the events during the transition period of the nation of Israel moving from Sinai to the plains of Moab right before they go across the Jordan in the book of Joshua. This is the movement. This is the recording of the 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness. How would the Jewish people transition from a people of slaves in Egypt to a ready nation to re-inhabit their original promised land in Israel? Remember, the Jews have been in Egypt for 400 years. Just think of the... the, the, um, the age of our own nation, just a couple of centuries old, 400 years. So when we think back about the founding of our country, double that. That's how far they had, this generation looked back as to the ones, their, their great, 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 great grandfathers and mothers had lived in the land of Egypt. They'd only heard about it. Now they were promised this deliverance from ex, uh, an exodus from Egypt to go back there. And the excitement was palatable. Exodus and Leviticus prepared Israel to enter the land. Now they need their marching orders. And that's what the book of Numbers is. But first, the nation has to understand the, well, they actually have to learn the hard lesson and lessons of how to live as God's covenant people and to prepare to be faithful in the land. And as we're going to see, they will fail miserably. This book is primarily, as I said, about the, wonder, the, the wilderness wanderings. 
and why Moses and the older generation were not allowed to come into the promised land. This is a line in the sand book. But to be frank and honest with you, I've seen so many people who are reading through the Bible bail out in the first four or five or six or seven chapters of Numbers because there are so many numbers. But when you understand why they're there, it may reset your understanding of the importance of these. Let me give you a basic outline. We're not gonna go through this, the book like this. I'm gonna give you an outline, talk through the outline for a moment, and then we're gonna just look at some highlights. The outline is very simple. The first four chapters are the organization of the people. Number one, the organization of the people, chapters one through four. This is the census that was given, uh, Moses was to take among the people so they would know who was who. Who are the 12 tribes? They've kept really good records, apparently, all the way through their, their uh, captivity in Egypt. And this was to codify that, to say who is in what tribe, how many are in each tribe, uh, whose father is who, whose grandfather is who, whose son is who. Let's get it organized. Let's get all of our paperwork ready before we go into the land. In a sense, this is almost like an extended will and testament. Who do we belong to? Who is our tribe? Who, is our, who are our markers? So the organization is very important. The census wasn't just because they needed to have, you know, the reason we have censuses so know who votes in what county. No, this is to mark the people reliably in their tribes. That's the first four chapters. That's why there are so many numbers there. And those meant tremendous, uh, had a, a tremendous amount of gravity and weight to the original readers. Secondly, the book breaks down in chapters 5 through 25 as the failure of the old generation. Said another way, it's the failure of the generation who came out of Egypt. The failure of the old generation. And then number three, it's the preparation of the new generation. That's chapters 26 through 36. So you have the organization of the people, chapters 1 through 4. That's the census or the series of censuses. You have the failure of the older generation. That's chapters 5 through 25. We'll look at those really detailed in a moment. And then the preparation of the new generation, which is 26 through 36. Because when you enter into Deuteronomy, we are right on what we call the plains of Moab, looking across the Jordan. The older generation has died off. We'll find out why in a minute. Moses, after begging God to give him a second chance, to go into the land, and God says no, and we'll find out why in a few minutes. And they enter into the promised land. It's the second giving of the law, the Deuteronomic, the, the second law preaching, literally, second giving of the law to the new generation. They needed to have a, a, a repeat sermon from the book of Exodus, and that's what Deuteronomy comprises itself of. This new law to a new, the old law to a new people. Well, what I want to do is just give you some highlights of the book of Numbers. These are things that most of you know about. These are, are uh, stories that have been taught downstairs in our children's um, curriculum. But they are not just children's stories. These are children's stories for adults. These really have gravitas for you and me. Let's start in Numbers 13. Numbers 13. And this is the account of the 12 spies. They were organizing themselves to uh, go over to um, the land and conquer it. And so in order to have some intel, some strategic 
uh, battle plans, they sent 12 spies over into the land. They did a full uh, investigation of who was where from the coast all the way to the highlands and the Negev, the lowlands, the, the uh, desert. And they came back and gave a report. And what's significant here is the report of 10 of the spies and the report of the other two. Let me pick it up just for, um, we're going to be reading a lot of scripture tonight, and I hope that's okay by you. Uh, Numbers 13, verse 25. The 12 spies, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, that's an important figure. Remember that, 40 days. They proceeded to come to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Go back earlier in the chapter, they were bringing massive grapevines that they would hold over their shoulders. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us. And certainly it does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea by the side of the Jordan. Verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, he grabs the microphone, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. Don't you love Caleb? But the men who had gone up with him, the other 10, Joshua's with him by the way, said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There we also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in their sight, in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. What's interesting at the end of 33, we became like grasshoppers in whose sight? First of all, our own. We were self-defeated before we did anything. And also, we were in their sight. Only two, Caleb and Joshua, we'll read that in just a moment, gave a good report and said, we should take God at his word who promised us we would go and be successful. We will go into the land. We will make war. We will defeat. We will drive out the inhabitants of our land. Remember, this was originally Israel's land. It wasn't like they were going and dislodging people who belonged there to take the promised land back. Two of 12. Look over at chapter 14. This is the most significant chapter in this book. Chapter 14. It's the costly rebellion. We looked at the 12 spies. Now we're going to look at, secondly, the costly rebellion. 
And we need to read a significant portion of this, this chapter, so I need you to work through it slowly with me and just hear the word of God as these, these inhabitants, these uh, uh, um, wilderness wanderers would have heard it. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. If you underline things in your Bible, that is a significant, significant phrase. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, this is a riot. Would that we had died in Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Do you hear what they're saying? We should go back to slavery. And he, we had it better as slaves in Egypt than we have it in the wilderness and have it locked between Egypt where we shouldn't can't go back and this new place that the spies told us we would die in. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? That's their question. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Another significant phrase. Verse 4, so they said to one another, and here comes the rebellion, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. This is mutiny. Moses, we want a different man to take us to a different place, namely where we were, where we complained for 400 years. What's the response of Moses and Aaron, his brother, going to be? What would your response to be to a mutiny, to a rebellion, to a conspiracy? Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation and the sons of Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of uh, Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land. Here's our two friends. They tore their clothes, sign of deep grief. And they all spoke to the congregation. They spoke to all the congregation, the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spout is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. It's abundant. This is the agricultural lottery. Only. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But, verse 10, all the congregation said, stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. I'll stop right there. Remember what we studied in the book of Exodus? The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night led the nation, led them through the, the, uh, um, the Red Sea, led them to, uh, to Sinai, led them to Kadesh, Barnea. And because of their golden calf, God took that leading presence away. But Moses would pitch a tent called the tent of meeting and the, the pillar of cloud in the day, the pillar of fire by night would come and meet with Moses and he would speak to God as, as a man speaks to his friend, Exodus 33 told us. So here we are, the presence of the Lord comes back in the tent of meeting. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? You, you see God's 
omniscience there, don't you? He didn't say, hey, Moses, what's been going on with the folks? He knew exactly what had been going on. How long will they not believe me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? you want a devotional thought? How long will we distrust God with all that he has shown us in his word? I'll smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. I will make you a great nation, greater than, mightier than they. I'm going to deal with, throw them out and work through you, Moses. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are uh, seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's protecting the integrity and the reputation of God. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your name will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. God, this will not look good. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great just as you have declared. Then he goes back to Exodus 34 and repeats, the Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. You know, God loves to be taken at his word. He doesn't need to be reminded of what he said, but he loves to know we remember what he said. Pardon them. This, this is... This is just really interesting to me as someone who's led people for many years. What would it be like if there was an insurrection? I, I am moved by Moses and how he prays. Verse 19, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt until, until now. You know what that reminds me of? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Moses was in the bullseye of their rebellion, and he's praying for their forgiveness. So the Lord said, what gracious God, I've pardoned them according to your word, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Verses 22 and 23 change the history of, of Israel. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt, this is that older generation who've been rescued out of Egypt in the wilderness, what they'd seen up on Sinai, yet have put me to the test these 10 times, have not listened to my voice, here it is, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Do you hear the prophecy there? This is why God, as we'll see in just a moment, will have them wander around in 40 years. It only would take a couple of months to walk there, by the way. But 40 years, God kept them in the wilderness to kill them off. But 
my servant Caleb because he had a different spirit and has followed me fully. What a great phrase. I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me another display of God's omniscience. He hears every complaint in our heart. He heard their conspiracies. He heard their gossiping. He heard their slandering of Moses and Aaron. He heard their slandering of God himself. Say to them, verse 28, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so surely I will do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men. Remember that census? One of the reasons to say whose dad is who, whose grandfather is who, is to make sure that they could accurately record that every one of them had died before they entered the promised land. According to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, there was the marker, 20 and under, 20 and up. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except... Caleb and Joshua. Profound. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in and they will know the land which you have rejected. Do you hear what's going on here? But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Here it is. Here's the prophecy. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. And they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. Do you see a pattern? According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, and for every day that you you shall bear the guilt for a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. Why did Israel wander for 40 years in the wilderness? It was a judgment for every day that the spies were over a month and change in the promised land, spying it out. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do this to all this evil congregation who have gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land against who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, those are the 10, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive out of those who went to spy out the land. When Moses spoke these words to all Israel, the people mourned greatly. Does that make more sense to you that why this 40-year wondering, why the older generation were not allowed, why only the 19 and younger were able to, to enter in? Just a little footnote, I couldn't resist doing a little research, a little study. God said in verse 22 <clears throat> that, that you have tested me 10 times. 
And that got me curious. When did they test God 10 times? So don't try to write. Here we go. First of all, in Exodus 14, verses 11 and 12, they lacked trusting God at the crossing of the Red Sea. In Exodus 15, 24, they complained over the bitter water at Marah. In Exodus 16, 3, they complained in the desert of sin. In Exodus 16, verse 20, collecting more than the daily quota of manna. They complained about the manna. Six, they complained over the lack of water in Exodus 17, 2 and 3. Number seven, they engaged in idol worship with a golden calf in Exodus 32 and tested God there. Eight, they complained um, at Tibera in Numbers 11. Uh, nine, they complained over the lack of delicious food in Numbers 11, 4. And number 10, they failed to trust God and enter the promised land because of their fears, which we just read about in Numbers 14. Ten times. They tested God. You know what that tells me? God is really gracious. They didn't wipe him out the first time or the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh or the eighth or the ninth. But at 10, he said, listen, you have now tested me beyond what I'm going to allow for you to enjoy the fruit of my promise. Number 16, Korah's rebellion. Let me just highlight this because it's, it's, uh, it's something that is often referred to and actually Korah will end up having some sons who might surprise you. In number 16, a man named Korah becomes jealous that Aaron has been chosen as high priest to the exclusion of anyone else. Why wasn't I a nominee? To make things worse, his cousin... Uh, Elitaz Afan had been uh, chosen as the head of the Levite family to which Korah belonged, which made him doubly jealous. These personal offenses and grievances where Korah had been passed over led to a full-blown rebellion. He was accompanied by Dathan and uh, Abiram and two men who had been troublesome, troublemakers actually since the days that they left Egypt They rallied 250 men against Moses in a rebellion. Remember, this is after the pronouncement of the judgment of the 40 years. They conspired, they organized, they confronted Moses. Their challenge was that that Moses had appointed his brother Aaron as high priest on his own accord. We know that God appointed Aaron through Moses, but they ignored that. They further demanded that they be allowed to serve as high priests. Korah and these 250. Moses comes back and responds that this was impossible as only one person could be the, not multiple, the high priest. Only one person could assume that sacred position. So to demonstrate that Aaron was indeed heavenly ordained, he sets up a test. I wish we had time to read this. He instructs, Moses instructs them all to take Censers, fire pans, offering little plates that they would, they would put holy fire in. Remember we saw that in Nadab and Abihu? And the next day they would offer incense before the Lord and God would accept the sacrifice of the one he deemed worthy to be the high priest. So next day, Korah's group swells in size overnight. 250 men approach the sanctuary with their incense-filled 
pans. Remember, this is the, the tabernacle. The scene is set. Moses had warned the Jews to stay clear of the tents of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. He addresses the crowd and he tells them this. God will punish the evildoers, either Aaron, the priestly line, or Korah and his rebellious 250 men. And he will punish them by the one who is wrong will fall into a pit that God is going to open in the earth and swallow them and kill them alive. So Moses finishes speaking. They offer their fire pans, and guess what happens? The earth opens up, swallows up Korah, his two conspirators, their families, their possessions, never to be seen again. And at the same time, a heavenly fire went out and consumed the 250 incense bearers. So when you hear of Korah's rebellion, that's what happened. Some of Korah's sons, by the way, Aaron can probably tell you more about this. Some of Korah's sons rebelled against their father and said, no, we want to honor the Lord. And they end up writing a whole bevy of psalms. Really interesting. Choosing the loyalty of the Lord over the loyalty of their father who they saw in sin. So many lessons. Please read Numbers. There's so many wonderful lessons here. Another highlight. We have to know this one. Numbers chapter 20. Moses disqualifies himself to enter the promised land. Moses disqualifies himself to enter the promised land. Oh, this is so hard to read even though we know what's happening. It's like watching a train wreck that you know is going to happen. Numbers chapter 20 verse 8. God says, take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. Is there any part of that command that's confusing? Speak to the rock. Water come forth. That's what he said before. Before the eyes of the people. So that it may yield its water. Thus you shall bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Remember, they're in a desert. There is no river. There's no water. I've been to this wilderness. It is a desolate place. And so there's a rock. And Moses was asked God to bless the rock and the rock would give water and enough for millions of people to participate in. It was a, a gusher. <clears throat> so Moses, verse 9, took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Aaron gathered, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock And said to them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock. Look at this. Twice with his rod. They know the case that the first time it didn't work. Then water came forth abundantly And the congregation and the beasts drank. God actually honors this disobedience. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me, God said, speak. He actually hid it. So some commentators think that it was some sort of of, um, uh, rock that was 
attached to a well that if he hit it hard enough, it would spring forth. But that's, that's not what's going on. He just didn't believe God. You have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, listen, listen, you, you, Moses, shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now, I'm not going to say much more about that because when we get to Deuteronomy, Moses provides an entire commentary on this and basically says, can I have a second chance? You know what God said? No. That's an important text for you to know why Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. Numbers 21. Again, we're just hitting some highlights. Serpents in the wilderness. Serpents in the wilderness. Those of you who are going to Israel with us in a few months, uh, I'm hoping we're going to be able to spend some time in in part of this um, desolate desert place. And I, the, the, the day that, well, I've, I've done it twice. And the first day I was there, first time I was there, our, uh, our guide, uh, we got off the bus and he said, I want you to all to go out and have your quiet time for a half an hour. Just a half an hour. And we all went out in the desert and sat by, down by rocks. It was about 106 degrees. Uh, it would, there were flies, it was sweaty, there were ants, it was just miserable, it was dusty when the wind blew. The wind was not only no relief, the wind made the heat worse. None of us made it a half an hour. We were looking around going, oh, you know, I, I've, I've read the Bible already today, this is good. But he was making a point, imagine living there for 40 years. Not only that, there were, there's lots of snakes out there. And if you're not a snake person, just hold on to this next narrative. Numbers 21, verse 4. They set out from the Mount, <clears throat> from Mount Hor and by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. You can imagine why they would be complaining. The people spoke against God and Moses. Listen to that again. They're grumbling against God. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Have we heard that before? For there is no food, no water. We loathe this miserable food. God gave them quail. I love quail. And manna. And they said, no, no, no. We we want other stuff. The Lord then sent fiery serpents, poisonous serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, if, you, if you're not a snake person, can you imagine them being everywhere you can't, you're, you're living in tents. There's no way to get away. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Please intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Again, Moses interceded for the people. What a a friend, what a leader. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten When he looks at it, will live. 
By faith, God said, if you look at it, you'll live. This is important. If you look at the fiery serpent by faith, you will have life. Remember that. Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he was healed. He lived. You say, why stop there? Because in John chapter 3, verse 14, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the son of man be lifted up. You see the connection there? You look to the serpent. There was nothing healing. There was nothing medicinal in that. You look by faith at the serpent and God will heal you. You look by faith at the one who's lifted up the cross of Jesus Christ and you can experience salvation. All right. Kids. Where's Hallie? Is Hallie out? She's out. Oh, man. Hallie, can we talk about the donkey now? She was really excited about this morning. Turn to Numbers chapter 22. We just have to talk about this one for a minute. And the lesson here is so complicated that we're going to make it simple. I know you say, what does that mean? There's a simple lesson that all the kids can learn. But this is, this is an interesting part of the Bible. So, kids, listen to this. In Numbers chapter 22, verse 21, we meet a prophet, a man named Balaam. Verse 21, Numbers 22, 21. Balaam arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and we find out that this donkey, I feel like I'm just having a, a children's sermon, but that's okay, the adults can listen in too. So this had been his donkey his whole life. We'll find out in a minute. This is his his trusted beast of burden, the way to get around. Balaam arose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going. He was doing something God had said don't do. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way, got in the road, as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and two servants were with him, witnesses. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way in the road with his drawn sword in his hand and the donkey turned off the road and went into the field and Balaam struck the donkey, he hit the donkey to turn back to the road, to the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he hit her again. He struck the donkey again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. See what's happening, kids? And the Lord, verse 28, opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, the she, this is, a, this is a female voice. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a mockery of me, you've disobeyed me. 
if there had been a sword in my hand, it would have been worse than a striking you. I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, just, just stop right there. It, does this not intrigue all of us that he just talks to the donkey? <laughs> I just find it. There, there is a, a bit of humor here that the, the donkey just turns around and says, why have you struck me these three times? And rather than saying, I can't believe you're talking, Balaam starts arguing with the donkey. The donkey said to Balaam, this is so endearing. Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? She's an old donkey. He, she's carried him many, many journeys. Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? He said, well, now that I think about it, no, you've been a pretty good donkey. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way. Ah, we find out something. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord, but Balaam didn't. Saw the angel of the Lord standing away with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground, and the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? I love the fact that the Lord is taking up for the donkey. Behold, I've come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. You were doing what you shouldn't have done. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from these, these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would have surely killed you just now and let her live. You see the irony there? Balaam says, if I'd had a sword, I would have killed you, donkey. And the angel of the, sword said, angel of the Lord said, if your donkey had kept going, I would have killed you and spared the donkey. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it has displeased you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. Now, kids, here's the main point. Here's the main point. Balaam simply did not do what God specifically asked him to do, and it was sin. But now he has new instructions and is going as a messenger of God. God stopped him with the donkey. One more place, one more highlight. Numbers 32. <clears throat> Just one verse, a little context. Bless you. The tribes had promised to commit soldiers for the war of conquering the land. This is the new, the younger generation who's now coming up. They're also taking their own census, getting soldiers ready to go in and fight. Moses warns, warns them that if they are not being honest, if they are not being straightforward, that an epic warning is going to come to pass. Not joining the cause to go and conquer the land had consequences. And now we read in Numbers 32, verse 23. I just want you to see this and know the context. It is so powerful and a great introduction into our time at the Lord's table. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure, be sure that your sin will find you out. Even though we think we have sins that are secret, night and day are alike to God, Psalm 139 says. 
Be sure your sin will find you out. Paul told the Galatians, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. It's a passage that most people know about. It's a passage that a lot of people quote, but few people know it's in the wonderful book of Numbers. The journey of the Israelites through the wilderness got Paul's attention. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6, he says, these things happen, talking about the wanderings in the wilderness, these things happen to them so that we would not crave evil things as they did, their own selfishness. So Paul tells us we need to read the book of Numbers and learn lessons from these failures and these repentances. Wow, do you see a resemblance between grumbling Complaining, rebellious hearts, complaining about God, complaining to God between us and the Israelites. How do we avoid following their example? I think one of the ways that God has put in our path, he hasn't put an angel with a drawn sword, but he has put communion, the Lord's Supper. I really think, and I'm not trying to spiritualize that text that God stopped Balaam with a supernatural expression of his presence God uses communion to stop us with a memorial representation of his presence there are three things commanded in the Lord's table examine yourself Remember Jesus and proclaim his death until he comes. 